Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And today I am not with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Richard is away for today, um, and so I'm going to miss him terribly. Uh, So it's up to me today. But I'm very excited about today's guest. We're going across um, to America to talk to uh, Dr. John Leaf. Now, he's a neuropsychiatrist. Uh, He studied mathematics at uh, Yale University. He's got a doctorate in medicine from Harvard. He's an innovator in several medical fields. He's pioneered the creation of integrated treatment uh, units that focus on complex patients uh, with combined medical, psychiatric, and neurological problems. He's built some of the first geriatric medical psychiatry hospital units and the largest geriatric treatment network in New England, which he directed for 25 years. And he's an expert and innovator in developing specialized innovative treatment programs for brain injured patients. But today we are going to talk to Dr. Leaf about something way broader than geriatrics. And that's his new book, The Secret Language of Cells, What Biological Conversations Tell Us About the Brain-Body Connection, the Future of Medicine, and Life Itself. Now, this is a amazing work. It's written in normal English that we can all understand, and it really does cover um, the essence of what it is in biology uh, that constitutes life. And fundamentally, that is the massive communications that are going on uh, in and between cells. Now, I thought I knew a little bit about this, but once I started listening to Dr. Leaf and started listening to his book, I recognized that I know near nothing. So (laughs) this is going to be a great adventure for all of us. uh, And I would encourage you to get the book, The Secret Language of Cells. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, With nothing further to do, let's go across to the United States and talk to Dr. Leaf. Dr. John Leaf, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. So great to see you. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. As I said, uh, as we're chatting before we started recording, to my shame, I hadn't seen this marvelous book of yours, The Secret Language of Cells, What Biological Conversations Tell Us About the Brain-Body Connection, the future of medicine, and life itself, such huge topics. <laughs> um, but I have had a look at this book, and this is your uh, one of our people. I mean, we've been talking about the integration of brain, mind, body, you know, for, for a lot of years, and uh, this, is a, this is a topic that is right up our alley, so really keen to get into the book. But before we do, uh, I'm wondering if you'd like to just let our listeners know a little bit about your career, uh, which we could do a whole show on as well. I, I think you're, you're like a David Attenborough of uh, everything to do with uh, communication in the natural world. So maybe you can just uh, give us a little bit of insight into what that has been about. You're right. Well, my medical career, which is many years, I uh, worked in hospitals, hospitalized patients, complex patients. I created units that included medical, neurology, psychiatry, Uh, you name it. We had very complex cases trying to tease out, is it medical? Is it psychiatric? Is it neurological? So I was always wondering what the mind is and where it might be and what does the physical body have to do with it? And so that was a constant question in treating patients for uh, many years. Brain injury program, ran brain injury programs, um, very involved in the elderly and geriatrics. Then about uh, 10 years ago, 
Uh, I mean, I've always been interested in science. I lectured widely on neuroscience and psychopharm. Uh, but about 10 years ago, I uh, started a website with the idea of trying to um, research uh, online uh, what is mind and where it might be in nature. And I, what, what I found is that the articles, neuroscience articles, were are very, very confusing and complicated to most people at the hospital. People would say, do I speak a foreign language? And I would say, yes, I speak molecular biology. <laughs> I speak molecular genetics. Uh, so I was basically take complex review articles and translate them into English each week. And this went on for years and uh, became apparent in, to, in my writings and readings that there is no module. There's no place for subjective experience. There's no uh, center that they thought they could find or modules. Every cell is highly connected to all the other cells. And even though we measure in fMRIs, those are measurements in, in seconds and the action is in milliseconds all over the brain. They say this center is active. Well, it's active in, in like two seconds. But meanwhile, all the whole brain has been talking a thousand times for uh, milliseconds. So we just don't know and it's funny, uh, I'm not a businessman, but Harvard Business Review reviewed my book. I was shocked. And they were taken with the notion that um, that the, the, the brain really is all the cells. It's really the body. Everything is talking and they're all communicating. But I began to investigate the brain. Then I was studying animals and I had the honor to write some articles with uh, Mark Beckoff, one of the great animal scientists. And I wrote about bees, brains and ants and termites and birds and uh, how amazingly uh, intelligent these creatures are with tiny little brains. But then microbes, I began to write a lot about microbes and how incredibly smart they are and how um, they build biofilms, they build civilizations and even viruses we can talk about uh, have signaling now we've we've found that i was writing about the lifestyle of viruses um and it appeared that they were part of the conversation that's going on between all the cells uh, but then I wrote about each kind of cell. I'd be writing about the gut cell and the, uh, the, the cancer cell and the platelet and the uh, blood vessel cell. And each one is extraordinarily intelligent, talking to its neighbors. And suddenly it dawned on me that I didn't see any books with this thesis. I, I, I looked around and the reason why there is no books is it's just filled with jargon. You can't get, even if you're in one little area, like you're studying platelet cells um, and Harvard Medical School featured my article on platelets because platelets are much smarter than we thought. They're not just plugs. They're like first responders who attack the, the, the viruses. They call for other cells and all. It became apparent to me that everything is happening uh, with cells talking to each other, that nothing happens without communication back and forth, back and forth, involving a lot of different cells. And it became apparent to me that that's where the action is. And when I looked around, there weren't any books with this thesis, uh, because if you're researching, as I said, the, uh, you know, the capillary cell, you know, in one down the hall, someone is researching the kidney cell. And if you read the journals, they're just gobbledygook filled with receptors and genes and no one can make sense out of this so i found translating them into english week after week after week for 10 years it became apparent to me that i had to write a book about how everything everything in life in biology is based upon communication of cells actually talking to each other and i tried to write it 
So, so anyone could understand it. So one, uh, you know, notable person said that even a high school science student could read it. Any general science reader could read it. I, I eliminated all jargon. You know, uh, some of the editors kept putting jargon in. I kept taking it out. And uh, so uh, basically um, I wanted it to be like a panoramic visual view of what it's like in the world of cells. And this one's talking to this one, this one. And it became apparent that, uh, you know, Andy Weil called it a new paradigm because a new paradigm for health and disease, because you can't now, um, if you want to study the kidney cell, you can't just study the kidney cell. You have to study all kinds of cells all over the body, how they're talking to each other. So I realized how incredibly integrated it is. And uh, that's when I wrote the book. I mean, the most is known about the brain and the immune system, and we can talk about that. But but I wrote about very obscure things like platelets and capillary capillary cells determine what the organs what what they're going to build. Like they tell the stem cells what to do, which is no one ever who would have thought that, and who would have thought that platelets were intelligent and 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 were first responders and called for different cells and could do things. Who would have thought that? But now the science is so good they can look at these details. Wow. Wow. So, and I'd love to get into some of those details in a second, um, but you've done this amazing job of translation, as you said, from gobbledygook to some, to English, um, which is wonderful. And you've taken siloed areas of research and you've joined the dots together right. so that we can have this, this big picture. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And you, you said, so you mentioned this as a paradigm shift. So in, in what areas of, of medicine and health, and we're, we're talking also to a lot of psychologists here in mental health, what are, what's going to be the forward impact of this paradigm shift? Well, um, let me just give you, uh, so one of the big things is the discovery in this science of signaling, of communication, is the discovery of what are called uh, uh, neuroimmune circuits, neuroimmune conversations. These are very important. I mean, this is just one conversation. You know, mm -hmm. I should talk about cancer. That's an amazing story, how they talk to each other like a colony and communicate and like, like microbes. And we'll talk about microbes, like why are microbes so important? You read about them everywhere. And that's because they speak the same language as our cells. And therefore, they can communicate. All, these, all the uh, kingdoms of cells speak the same language. But probably the most research has been on the neuroimmune. And so let me give yeah. you an example. It used to be thought that there were no immune cells in the brain. And there really aren't. The microglia is there. The microglia is an immune cell, a macrophage, actually, where in the fetus, it travels. Uh, all these fetus cells are traveling around. How do they know what they're doing? Anyway, they go travels into the brain area and then stays there and lives there for the rest of its life and has children in one little discrete area, sort of watching out for and monitoring one particular area of neurons. Um, so uh, other than that, we, there aren't any uh, immune cells in the brain unless something terrible is happening. But what we didn't know is that in the cerebral spinal fluid, which surrounds, we used to think it was just a cushion. 
and I deal with a lot of brain injury and, you know, the, the effect of uh, uh, of concussions. And, and of course, it is a cushion, but it's it's vastly more than that. It's actually a a river of of signals and communication. It's a symphonic uh, thing going. And, and there are cells that control making this cerebral spinal fluid, and they also regulate uh, signals going back and forth from the blood into it. But we didn't know that there's half of 500,000 T cells. Now, T cells with a chapter on T cells is very interesting. They're the master immune cells. They are, everyone reads about T cells and they're because they're the ones that tell all the other immune cells what to do. And they, a lot happens in the first responders until the T cell gets there. T cell is the boss and tells everyone what to do. Um, and it can go after things much more specifically and it helps make antibodies. It helps in everything. So we didn't know that there were 500,000 T cells floating in the cerebral spinal fluid. That was shocking. And what, what happened is that a T cell is sending signals into the neurons in the in the tissues of the brain, and it's telling. It, we get an infection. We have a flu. We feel sick. Um, the T cell tells the neuron to create the sick feeling. So it's a signal, uh, and so the neuron says, "Okay, we have to rest." So we get sick. We feel bad. We tired. We lie down, and that helps us heal. And only the T cell can tell the neuron to stop this. And by sending a pulse, get back to normal cognition. And so normally the T cell is the one telling the, the neurons to keep cognition going in a normal way. And when it wants to stop, it sends a signal. That's just one of many. So it was also learned uh, the fetus has makes about a trillion cells. And then it prunes it down to a mere 80 billion. And um, then... After birth, there's only about a thousand a day. And uh, it's been controversial how many, where, what, but it, most of them go to the nose to refresh the, the, uh, the sensory data in the nose, which is so important. And the other goes to the memory center. And what happens is we lay down um, memories associated with, we don't know how a cell is associated with memory, just so we don't know how subjective experience relates to the brain, but they do seem correlated in some way uh, I view it as like a car. The memory is driving a vehicle or a controller, like a TV. It's controlling it. Anyway, uh, there are memories associated, and the new cells come about when we either learn new things or we re-remember things. So I always tell people to use, the, and of course, then when sleep occurs, the new memory uh, is, uh, what happens is they pull back on all the synapses and they emphasize the important ones at night. Um, and then uh, we can benefit from this reconsolidation of memory by taking a traumatic event, a, tra a traumatic memory and re-remembering it, associating it to the new cell and uh, but adding a little bit of therapy, a little bit of love, a little bit of self-esteem, something that changes, slightly changes the memory. Now, what happens is the old memory cell is still there, connected, still memory, but the new cell gradually is younger and stronger and takes over. And eventually mm -hmm. it's kind of replaces it and it becomes the dominant uh, uh, way that we remember. And we can keep doing that. We can keep chipping away at the trauma and lessening the overwhelming effect. Now, what is new is that, um, of course, that's new, but what also is new is that when depression occurs, from whatever cause, the T cell 
like it tells the neuron to create the sick feeling, the T cell says, uh, produce less memory cells. And we get this brain fog of depression, which everyone knows about. It's all, So then when we cure depression through therapy, medication, shock treatment, walking in nature, jogging, whatever, what happens is the T cell starts telling uh, the, the stem cells in the brain to make go back to making neurons. The same happens with stress, acute stress. You actually get better brain for a night or two while you're working on something. And then if it continues, it gets worse. The stress uh, gets negative, And then we get the less and less cells and the brain fog. So this is the communication going. This is one example of a thousand of going from the T cell to the neuron. Now going in the other direction. And by the way, that's, I'm finding that neuroscience today is proving psychotherapy is proving right. that it works yes. because when drugs came in in the 50s and 60s basically everyone says ah the, the hell with psychotherapy it's all drugs it's all biological whatever that is because everything is biological and what we've learned now is the brain is constantly changing building circuits here and there to the frontal lobes of the side. And what it's showing is the effect of using the mind on the structures of the brain. And I think we are, and here's an example where psychotherapy creates new brain cells. It's, it's showing, yeah. it does that. And there are many ways that the, I'm really delighted because I was one of the few psychiatrists that always worked with my partner who was a psychologist who did the therapies. Uh, and I uh, did the medications and the sort of the overview, but in the medical overview, but we worked always together for 30 years. And, uh, but of course, it, psychotherapy was, pre it was harassed by insurance companies uh, when this so-called biological vision came about. And now you can't separate them. And the new neuroscience is proving how uh, psychotherapy is as good as any way to change the brain, you know, like walking in nature is a way to change the brain. So here's an example of the other way from neurons. We went from immune to neurons. Now neurons, so there are many ways that neurons can make any kind of inflammation, any kind at all. And uh, we didn't know this, that neurons can make 30 different kinds of inflammation. So, and it can help inflammation. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, pains, we're finding pain circuits are, uh, the pain chapter would be worth uh, yeah. someone looking at uh, because it shows that there are these big, large synapses involving many more cells than we would, it's not just a conversation of the neurons, it involves the astrocyte, the microglia, T cells, skin cells, gut cells, cancer cells, immune cells, all kinds of things. And they're huge synapses with 30 different uh, signals going. And these are the basis of many just newly discovered chronic pain syndromes. And we're going to learn more about these synapses, which will help uh, delineate uh, many different chronic pain syndromes, highly related to immune, highly related to chronic symptoms of, you know, of fatigue and whatever, all these symptoms that people have. Uh, we're going to be learning about that through these, these complicated neuroimmune circuits. But one, just one example is, Meditation or relaxation, we know, works through the vagus nerve and it calms the heart and it calms the breathing and it calms the gut. And, but we didn't know how could meditation improve immunity? How could it trigger 250 genes and cytokines and signals? But, well, we discovered that the neurons can 
influence immune cells and, and send signals, send immune signals. And lo and behold, the vagus nerve, that same meditative thing, is improving immunity in another section of the body. So down in the spleen, in the lymph nodes, it's creating uh, immunity. Another, just one of many findings from this neuroimmune circuits, which are complicated. It's, it's all not just neurons. They're called the neuron-centric view of neuro, neuroscience, which is really narrow. It's it's not going to win. It's not going to tell us what we need. These are broad circuits. Anyway, so the other one is with acupuncture. So no one has ever figured out how acupuncture works. And what's logical, I mean, it does work, uh, but only symptomatically. You hit here and this happens, you know, nausea, pain, et cetera. You can't get a diagnosis that makes any sense, but it affects, it does cause effects. So what happens is we don't know, you would think that it's a uh, a force of some kind uh, you're affecting. And the forces in the West are blood flow and neurons. But there are many acupuncture points that aren't on either. So what's going on? Well, this was a great research that, you know, and the research is getting so good, they can see cells and molecules. I mean, this is fantastic what they, what they can see now what in science. So uh, you take this point in the wrist and you you put the acupuncture and you and you stimulate it with electricity and it's not near a neuron. And it's not near a blood vessel, but it causes an effect in the, in, in the spleen. Well, what's going on? Well, it turns out underneath there, there is a T cell sitting there that the acupuncture point stimulates that immune cell, the master immune cell, who then travels a little bit, sends a signal to the neuron. It goes into the brain and it goes down to the spleen. So again, that's just, these are just simple examples of a widespread phenomenon that is going to totally revolutionize because depression is not one thing. Depression is 15 things and a third of them are immune things. I mean, yeah, yeah. Logically, you look at the symptom list, you know, obviously, and the more and more research is showing that, that certain kinds of depression are associated with, with immune factors. Anyway, I've done a lot of blabbing. So yeah, that's, that's a, that's a lot to take in. And, and obviously we have <laughs> to have this, this whole picture of how this whole system works. So one of the fascinating things that, um, that you point out, you know, we've got a wired communication system and they've got a wireless communication system. Right. Now, I think a lot of people get the wired system because, you know, many of our listeners will be very familiar with the activity of neurons. But what we're probably not so familiar with, in, especially talking about T-cells, is this wireless communication network. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yes. Well, we all learned in school that neurons talk to each other in circuits and they send an electrical signal down an axon, which then triggers calcium, which then sends a little sack with a neurotransmitter to the next. But what we were not taught, and no one knew until recently, is that the neuron deliberately eliminates myelin in certain areas. Like in the cortex, there are all these fancy patterns of myelin not being there, and, and it's signaling sideways it sends out a, 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 an immune signal to, to immune cells sitting there uh, next to the tissues. And that's one thing. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it was not known how important sacs are, these little sacs surrounded by a membrane. Cells love to fill them with information molecules and send them. All, uh, neurons do that. They send these sacs 
They also, uh, cancer cells love these sacs. They're called exosomes. They put all kinds of information. They put, they modify mitochondria and they send them to each other. Um, also, there are uh, nanotubes. These are tiny little tubes that we've shown uh, are used by, it's like an internet for microbes in the soil. They go the equivalent of thousands of miles and they'll have one microbe eating a rock, eating some iron over here, sending electrons all the way, you know, inches in the soil and helping all the other uh, microbes getting food. They eat electrons uh, along the way. But um, it turns out there's nanotubes between all of the cells. They're just too tiny, and we're just beginning to discover them. So, for example, between T cells, HIV use nanotubes to travel from one cell to the other without even going outside. They just try. They just go in the nanotube. Cancer cells use these to send modified. They modify mitochondrion, which is how they become so marvelously successful in, in, in multiplying and magnifying and growing. They they take what the T cell does and 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 magnify it they are like master cells they are highly uh, intelligent cells they communicate between their comrades they send uh genes between each other like microbes to avoid our medications they send genes to help fight off viruses that might be attacking them they manipulate the signals of all the local cells and convince them to uh join them in building this structure that's abnormal. Uh, they make new blood cells that are abnormal. So, so back to the neuron. So the neuron has all these ways of communicating as well and electricity. So the neurons vibrate and send electric, electromagnetic information from one brain center to another. Like one frequency will say, where, if you have a memory, like one frequency is where you were and another frequency is what time it was in the memory. We, we're just learning about this, uh, you know, uh, the, but more than that, there's a lot of electricity in the brain. You have all these neurons lined up. You have fields in between them. And, mm -hmm. we're, and we know that fields are important, like for building in the embryo, these gradient mm -hmm. fields are how the embryo builds the brain to begin with. Not only that, but there are things called electrical synapses. Now, electrical synapses, we, we don't understand what this is, but basically these are connections sideways between two neurons, and it's just a free flow of electricity back and forth. Um, and uh, it turns out that when the brain is built, everything is an electrical synapse first, and then the the chemical synapses are built on the electrical synapses. So that happens also later in life. If you're going to rebuild something or a synapse or a new synapse, you may start with electrical. You may have a combination of both. We have no idea how the neuron knows what this electrical information is, but it surely does because when you have an astro, you have an astrocyte malignant tumor in the brain, they're called astrocytomas, this very amazing cell that's extremely successful and deadly, basically it makes these electrical synapses with all kinds of neurons, and it's just stealing energy constantly. Like They steal energy from 60% of the neurons around them. Uh, they're just taking their energy and building, the, building the, the cancer. So neurons are communicating in at least five, 10 different ways. And we don't have a clue. Like when you talk about describing the brain based upon the circuits, it's kind of ridiculous because yeah. you have the circuits, which are wonderful and a part of it, but then you have the astrocyte circuits that are just as complicated that are necessary. Yeah. And then you have all these other factors working. Um, so 
you we to think you're going to describe how the brain works only through neuronal circuits is very very narrow-minded and it, yeah. it's not happen it's not going to happen so that all these factors are going to have to be taken into place yeah so i'm familiar with um astrocytes being kind of like a slow wave communication system but it seems like it's even more complex than that that very- I, I've got to catch up because I've I've just written about half a dozen yeah, yeah, questions. <laughs> um, so back to nanotubes. Now, I'm familiar with nanotubes being within a cell, like in a neuron. I didn't realize that nanotubes were between cells. Is well, that what you're, what you're talking saying? about? Nanotubes in the neuron are not what I'm talking about. Nanotubes; those are microtubules. Microtubules. Sorry, micro. micro yeah, well, they are nanotubes. They're tiny. Uh, very specialized. There are three kinds of scaffolding molecules that work. Mm-hmm. The microtubules are the highways that the motorized devices are bringing uh, mitochondria, they're bringing material, they're bringing yeah. important stuff back and forth on the axon. Actin is at the end. Like if the microtubule is the highway, the actin is the local streets going on uh, right near the, the, the delivery, the port where the neurotransmitter goes off. But and, and, what these are, are, they're like it. They are protein-based. In other words, a microtubule is made out of a very particular kind of protein. Some mm-hmm. people think the microtubule is the brain, is, is, is you know, is consciousness, uh, because it, it, it could be a quantum computer. But, you know, this is speculative. I don't, I don't speculate, actually, in any right. of my writings. Or I made a vow just, we know so much that we don't need to speculate, actually. We're learning so much that I, I think I showed just through d- details that yeah. we cannot think of life as just a cell. We have to think of it as an intelligent cell. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. So we're a huge composite of many, many different kinds of intelligent cells. Um, but anyway, the, so the nanotube I'm talking about is external mm-hmm. and it can go a big different, a big distance. Like with the, it's like an internet for the microbes, but in the cancers, they have two kinds. One is a, th- uh, a thicker kind that goes for a couple of days, and another is a thinner kind that goes for months. And they're yeah. sending molecules to their comrades and keeping their scene together. They're using the sacs to send out as a ship with all kinds of stuff that will start a metastasis, and they send it to certain uh, faraway ports. Uh, each each tissue has a dialect of the conversations of the signals. And some cancers know the dialect of the bone, the right. lung, brain. So they're, when their sacs reach those places, they sit there for a while. They begin to communicate with the local cells, and they build a metastasis. They, they build a colony. Um, so that's through sacs, not through nanotubes. Nanotubes are sort of closer to the action and near uh, helping to build the structure and sending vital uh, genes to fight viruses. Uh, you know, it, it's a colony. It's an intelligent colony of cells working together. Uh, that's what we have to think of it as, or we're not going to understand it and defeat it. So, for example, we use most modern medicines are based upon the natural conversation. So there's a natural conversation of T cells trying to kill cancer cells because they're abnormal. We're supposed to get this cell. But cancer cells are so complicated because the cancer has a thousand cells and five different areas are subsets that have already made new mutations and are different. And so the the T cell doesn't get this. It's attacking like it's a virus. It's one thing. And it make a major attack and attack. And then it, it doesn't kill it t-cell doesn't know what to do so now we're finding that they get exhausted and so we're designing 
it's called CAR T, C A R T. It's a type of thing genetically we alter the T cells so it'll last longer and fight the details of this. Each cancer is different, by the way. Every single person's cancer is, like you say, breast cancer, they're not the same. Everyone has a different set of mutations, as many as 40 or 50 mutations. And then you'll have a subset that has like 60 over here, and that's a different cancer. And you can kill all the cancer cells except for one stem cell. And that one stem cell will start it all over again. Wow. Talking about cancer, it's uh, just so many analogies pop up in my brain about politics, but uh, we won't go there. But <laughs> politics has become a cancer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's some quite literal uh, connections to be made there. Um, to, why haven't we seen these uh, nanotubes in the past? Are they just because they're small. so small? Right. Okay. Small. Just, I mean, the, the science today is just fantastic. We have so many devices and it's yep. so, I mean, I talk about this, the fact and that fact, these are tremendous amount of effort and time of, of, of the, you know, hundreds of thousands of scientists all over the world working on yep. one little thing. But so I put it together, but yep. you know, I can't do anything without all these scientists doing it. And the, and the devices are getting so amazing that we can mm. see down to DNA and how we need 30 proteins talking to each other in order to start a protein. I mean, it's just fantastic what we're learning. But the nanotubes are going to get bigger and bigger, more important. Uh, and it's not clear what they do with neurons at this moment. But right. They have to be there because they've been described and they're everywhere. And they're, it's, they've been very carefully observed and documented yeah. in cancer cells and in microbes. And yeah. I'm sure they're almost everywhere. I was taken by Stuart Hammeros' um, theory of, um, you know, quantum communication through the microtubules. Um, you were captured by it. I was captured by it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like you said, it's speculation. Speculative. You know, I love uh, Roger Penrose. I love the theory. But it, it, it's speculative. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. We do know that the current science does not include subjective experience, so it's ridiculous. In other yeah. words, to have a science, to, and, and a lot of these scientists and psychologists want to say, because we don't have a science proving it, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as subjective experience, which you and I and everyone knows is, 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 is nuts. So to have a science that can say nothing about the most important thing in our lives, and what we obviously know is real, mm. it's going to have to change. There's going to have to be a new kind of science that includes subjective experience and consciousness in physics. It has to be in physics, and you know. And quantum is part of it. And uh, I, re, I uh, my next book is going to be about uh, orbitals and how molecules are communicating, as well as uh, uh, chemical reactions and how all this. In my book, I only talk. I talk about cells. There's a section on the uh, the body cells. I had to separate it somehow mm. to talk, and then the brain cells, then the microbe world and viruses, and then the organelles, the mitochondria, smaller and smaller. The very last chapter, I threw a teaser in. I put a molecule, a, 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 an enzyme, a protein that seems to communicate like it's a cell. And so that's my next book is to show how this intelligent communication is not just cells. It's actually deeper. Uh, yeah. It's actually deeper in, in, the, in the molecules and in the chemical reactions. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was going to say, as we as we continue to talk, you know, we're getting on the, the the smaller and smaller level and there's at, at the at the foundation there has to be a a common communication you talk about the the sharing of electrons 
um, photons in, in terms of communication. Everything is based on electrons, as far mm -hmm. as we know. I mean, every gadget we're using, this Zoom presentation, it's an electron traveling, going through a motor, going through a computer, doing things, and then continuing on. Um, the electrons go in the mitochondria, they produce energy, they create the protons, they create ATP. Uh, electron produce all the chemical reactions that create the DNA to begin with. So that's mm. what I'm, I mean, I'm grappling with for my next book. Uh, but I, I, I'm actually going to go from human to superhuman, you know, internet, interpersonal, down to animal cells, down to embryos, then to mm. cells, then to the cascade of way that cells work inside down to the to the DNA and then down to the actual chemical reactions. I, I, I want to show that all of these levels have communication as their basis. Wow. Wow. You must have a good grasp of the fabric of life, which in the subtitle of your book, you know, you, you, you speak about, um, you know, life itself. <laughs> have a, um, are these philosophical musings or are you still, you know, just presenting well, no, the, the uh, science? Very, very specific. I, mm -hmm. uh, what I, again, I don't speculate. Um, that is the one, the, the last chapter, is the, there's a little speculation, uh, but basically right now it's impossible to define life. You, Zimmer, Carl Zimmer has a wonderful book about that. How he, you take every definition of life from a scientist and it, it just doesn't make any sense. So you, you say, well, it involves reproduction. Well, you know, I passed reproduction. Am I dead? I mean, you know, I'm not reproducing now. You know, old people don't reproduce. A neuron doesn't reproduce. Is it alive? Well, obviously. So he takes every single definition of life and none of it makes any sense. There are uh, the ways that it, uh, viruses, are they alive? Of course they're alive, but they're not alive. Well, they are alive in the same way. People don't really understand that it, what they're calling the virus is really a spore. It's really mm. hibernating. The virus is when it comes into the cell and takes over the cell and builds a factory in the cell and actually dominates the cell. And 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 how can that little tiny thing with nine HIV has like nine genes? You know, Ebola has seven genes. How can seven genes take over this huge T cell that has thousands and thousands of proteins and genes and mechanisms? Yet it does. And it creates a, a room or builds a factory. That's when the virus is. Is alive, uh, and then when it's traveling, it's just a spore. Uh, but the bottom line is, right now, where science is at, life is defined as a cell that has metabolism, can reproduce, and maybe some other things. That's it. Mm. I feel, if you read my book, it's very clear that it has to also include not just a cell, but an intelligent cell that's talking to other cells. Now, how does a cell in one part of the body know to talk to a cell, uh, you know, in the other part of the organ or far away? How does it know this? Well, we don't have any idea, but it is doing that. That's what's happening. I'm not speculating on how we know, but it is doing that. So that is the definition of life has to be broadened at least that much from the mm -hmm. current information that we have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. There's something like a virus, which is generally considered a, a non-living thing has a, a a kind of a, a wisdom about it that it can do I write about does. viruses a lot on my website I wrote articles about HIV about Ebola about mm. uh, varicella dengue and I have a chapter in my book that also includes a little bit about covid yeah. what we have to understand so we knew that microbes send signals 30 years ago 
but it, they were too small. You couldn't figure it out. And yet, and, and, and we gradually learned how important microbes are in our lives. I mean, here in the gut, you have trillions, you have 300 times more DNA making products than our cells. They're making hundreds of times more products than, than we're making. And a lot of them are important. And, and the reason, of course, that they can be influenced is because they speak the same signals. But about four years ago, it was discovered that viruses signal. I always thought they did, but I didn't say they did because I didn't have evidence. And But what I did do is I described their lifestyle. So I said, well, it's a very complicated lifestyle. How do they do this uh, if, they're, if they're not signaling? Turns out we found the signal, the first one, about four or five years ago now. And now there are at least 15 whole languages evolving all kinds of cells. Now we're finding that cell viruses are building structures that are like biofilms are cooperating, they're communicating. So viruses are part of the picture. What, what's, what's the mechanism of communication? How, what's the channel? Same thing, little molecules. Oh, okay. Yeah, little uh, re- molecules and receptors, just like cells. Mm. Uh, like they'll send a little molecule that'll say, Let's all get together and decide whether we should kill this bacteria if we had enough of it, move on, or do we let it live and continue to eat off this, uh, live off this bacteria? And they make a decision based upon, uh, uh, that's called quorum sensing in microbes. We've known about that for 20 years, but now it's true with viruses, which is, now what viruses are, they're everywhere. They are the catalog, they are the Wikipedia, they are the repository of all knowledge. They are the repository of all DNA strands. They have vastly more DNA strands than all other creatures put together, including all the microbes. They are There are more of them than there are stars in the sky. Uh, it's vast. And these viruses are constantly uh, sending information, changing, going here, going in and out of cells. Cells use them to send signals. They're transferring uh, resistance genes to their favorite bacteria. They're fighting against the enemy of their favorite bacteria. They're helping our cells. But even more than that, if you look at our DNA, human DNA, 2% less, 2% is what we call our genes. 8% are from retroviruses that are in our DNA, and they make the placenta, they make the syncytium molecule that that you wouldn't have as placenta. They also make all kinds of stuff for for stem cells, for the brain. One of the reasons the human, and it's mostly in in, uh, human cells, there's all this jumping genes going on. Uh, The the, the more sophisticated a brain is, the more there are uh, jumping genes and these retroviruses. So, Someone won the Nobel Prize recently for changing one cell into another uh, and making it into a stem cell by taking what they call transcription factors. These are proteins that are necessary to make things happen in the genes. And you have to do certain genes that will make a cell go back to a stem cell. They got that information from the retrovirus DNA that's in the human cell. So uh, that comes as a gift from from the virus. Also, the amylase enzyme is a gift from viruses. The placenta is a gift from the virus. Now, that's just this uh, one 8%, 50% of our DNA. So basically, 2% is real genes, 8% are retrovirus, maybe 30% are create only RNAs that are important for everything, regulation, signaling. 50% are virus-like strands called jumping genes. Wow. 50%. And they're moving around and they're active. 
And those are very important for evolution of the human brain and for alternative splicing. So DNA viruses are not, they're, they're vital to, they're part of us. They're vital uh, to our existence. They're, they can be extremely positive and very negative, as we know. I mean, the problem is you can't go running around destroying habitats willy-nilly without paying attention to the fact that a virus that's been quite happy living off a bat uh, for a thousand years is suddenly, I say, oh, here's a human. This is great. I'll jump to the human, see if I can make it. And if they make it, hey, this is great. I'll move to the next one. And uh, sure enough, we have uh, COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, there's no way a human could have designed the spike like they're talking about. As a matter of fact, Zimmer described a study recently done in a totally different part of the world in uh, Southeast Asia, where they found three bats with coronaviruses, almost exactly like COVID uh, with the spike. Uh, So it is our, sadly, abusing the environment like so many things, (laughs) like so many things are today. Sad stories. Wow, that is so amazing, and and uh, and you cover viruses in your book, and I'll, well, point yes. people to your website as well. Obviously, there's a there's a wealth of information. You've been uh, you've been translating science for us for for a long time, so you must have a, a great archive of material there, Doctor Leaf. This is overwhelming, <laughs> the information that you've got here, and uh, I am so appreciative that you've been able to translate into into English for all of us um, to understand and uh, would definitely be pointing people to your book. But what I would love to do in the future is to bring you back and maybe we can just hone in on some specific um, details and and just, uh, you know, just go a little bit deeper because I'm very aware that we've kind of just skimmed the surface today um, in the time. Yeah, we didn't had. talk a lot about how to use the brain and how yes. that and neuroplasticity. We really should talk about neuroplasticity. This has been a good primer anyway for people to to get into your material. Dr. John Lee, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast and looking forward to speaking with you more in the future. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, wow. What a reservoir of amazing information Dr. John Leaf is. And uh, I, like I said, you know, I so appreciate his capacity to be able to read the hard science and to be able to translate it into normal English for all the rest of us so that we can get this bird's eye picture of life itself, the communication between um, all of our cells and uh, the, the fabric of, of life on the planet, really. It's just so fascinating, um, all of the cellular conversations that are happening. Now, we didn't get to talk about things like neuroplasticity, which is very important in our world of uh, psychology and uh, psychotherapy. Uh, we will get Dr. John Leaf back and talk about those things that are specific to treatment, to psychology in general. So look out for that. We will have him back. Now, thank you so much for everyone for um, joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. If you appreciate what we're doing, uh, we would love you to be a member of the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's a subscription membership where you can jump in, be part of the tribe, and have access to a wealth of information Uh, including our recent series that we've just started, The Science of Us. We've got our first episode up, The Gut-Brain Axis. Uh, You'll have free access to that. You can just watch it as a video or you can do it as a course, uh, as well as, well, the whole archive of everything we've been doing since 2013. So thanks again for joining us here. Uh, We'll catch up with Richard next time. Uh, So until then, 
Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.